very special episode of The Pod and the Pendulum. Uh, this is your host, Mike Snoonian, on his own tonight with an interview with the director of Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, director Adam Marcus. Adam, how are we tonight? I'm awesome, Mike. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great, man. And I, you know, I'm super glad you got to join me tonight. Um, I had a really important question for you here that I wanted to start with. It's something that I've been wondering for a long time. Sure. Um, so what is your opinion on whether or not a hot dog is or isn't a sandwich? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I, I don't know if I would call it a sandwich. Okay, we can continue then. Yeah, yeah. Being a New Yorker, I don't think any New Yorkers ever called it a sandwich. Excellent. All right, we can continue then. Yeah. So, though, yeah. I, honestly, my first question is this: I kind of wanted to know. You know, we know the background of how you got um, the Final Friday. Basically, being a childhood friend of Noel Cunningham, mm-hmm. um, starting your own theater company in high school, mm-hmm. and directing a ton of things, mm-hmm. and then basically telling Sean Cunningham, "Give me this movie or else." Um, <laughs> but what sort of like what I want to know is like. What sort of pressure did you put on yourself like once you got the gig? Because looking at the history, it's the first – it's not just a Friday the 13th movie. It's the first one for New Line. It's been five years in between films, mm-hmm. and the past three didn't perform commercially like the others had. That has right. to be a lot of pressure for someone at 23 years old. What was that like for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I uh, This I, – I've – I've been asked this recently several times, and I and I get I get why people ask it because the perception must be that, oh my God, I'm so young, I'm being handed the reins to the biggest horror franchise in history as of that point. Um, what what have, what have I brought upon myself? Here's the thing, I didn't think any of that stuff. I was far too excited about what I was working on. I was far too in love with getting to play in this sandbox. Um, and look, uh, my whole family's in the industry, um, or at least most of my family's in the industry. And, um, and so I've been around it my whole life. And the fact that, you know, Noel and I were best friends when we were kids from the time we were about, you know, six or seven on, uh, I was always around Sean and the Cunninghams. Um, and but by the way, you know, Sean, absolutely remarkable producer. Um, but his wife, Susan, you know, is an editor or was an editor. God rest her soul. We lost her earlier this year. And and one of the nicest women I've ever known and was like a mom to me. Um, these, you know, these were incredibly talented, driven people. So I just, I was never allowed to act as anything but professional. Like I had to be a professional. So by the time I was 11, um, that's the way I was behaving. So when I got the gig to do Jason, remember I wasn't, by the way, everybody was likes to think that I was, that I was 23. I was 21 when I got the gig. <laughs> okay. So people always want to think it's 23. You know, 23 is when I shot the film. Um, I got the gig to write the movie when I was 21 because I had brought, and you guys had, had delved into this a little bit on your show. Um, which I got to hear, and you guys are awesome. Like, I, it's why I responded immediately. Like, you guys are great. I want to talk to you. Absolutely. Um, the 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 thing that happened was I graduated film school. I graduated NYU. I had one best picture with a movie there that was a comedy, a romantic comedy. 
um, a very R-rated romantic comedy. Um, Sean had seen it and loved it. Asked me to come to LA. I I was I was supposed to be his bitch for a year, and then he would give me a shot. I brought a script with me that my closest friend in college, Dean Laurie, had written called Johnny Zombie. And you guys talked about it. it ended up becoming my boyfriend's back for mm-hmm. Disney. And here's the thing: we set it up with Disney. I was the driving force behind that movie. And uh, and then I saw that what Disney was going to do to it. it. They were going to turn it into a Disney movie. And it was an, it was originally an R-rated zombie comedy with musical numbers in it. And they turned it into this soft PG-13. I don't know what how you would categorize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's great things about that movie. And I love Bob Balaban and I love the cast. So. Uh, but I ended up being an associate producer on that movie. That ended up being my first gig. Well, I brought Sean a lot of money, and I turned to him and I said, great, I just made you a killing. I'm not going to be involved with this movie. Uh, one, I think, you know, Disney was like, wait a minute, 21-year-old kid directing our movie? What are you, insane? And second, I didn't want to do it. Like, the movie was not going to be the movie that I loved. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the, the, the advice I give any young filmmaker is like, don't make a movie you don't love. You have to love the movie. So uh, I said, Sean, I've made you a ton of money. I want a movie. Give me a movie. You owe me one. And at that point, Sean, Sean said, Adam, you are the world's biggest nudge, which, <laughs> which, I, which at that point I didn't know was really a compliment, but one of the best compliments I had ever gotten. And, uh, and then he said, look, New Line's buying Friday 13th from Paramount. They're going to buy Jason Voorhees. If you can get the if you can get the fucking mask out of the movie, I'll let you write and direct it. What was it about the Hawking? Because one thing we I mean we talk about it more in the episodes we're doing now is like huh? Sean Cunningham seems to really <laughs> either hate or not get the character of Jason, and we huh? can't quite wrap our heads around that. What is it about the character and the mask that seems to really set Sean on edge, do you think? Okay. So, uh, you know, Sean ostensibly had made a ripoff of Bay of Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, was, he, was doing, he was playing on themes that the Italians had been doing for a decade at that point. But he came up with this great twist that it's this middle-aged woman who's murdering these kids, and he's got this rock-solid foundation of why, which is her child, this poor, you know— Handicapable kid with a hydrocephalic head is allowed to drown because the camp, the 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 the, uh, the counselors who should be watching him are off in the woods having sex. That's that's great. Like that's just a great story, right? Really simple. He's doing ten little Indians with a ton of gore, thanks to Tom Savini. Awesome. Well. Then I don't know if you remember, but there are raindrops at the the last shot of the of the film when she says mm-hmm. the boy. Then he's still out there. There are raindrops on the surface of the of the of the pond of the These of small the ripples. Right? Correct. Yep. Right. But they're raindrops. Well, the the executives of Paramount see them as air bubbles coming from under the surface of the pond. That's how they, that's where they came up with this whole freaking idea. That's where this was born. So. In in what is a beautiful piece of photography at the end of that movie is sort of the secret to how this this gets born. Okay, Mm -hmm. now here's the thing. I'm 
11 years old when that movie, or yeah, I'm 11 years old when that movie gets released, right? And for me, it's the coolest shit I've ever seen. And you also have to remember, I had seen the movie four times before it went to theaters because I watched it at Noel's house. Mm-hmm. By the way, just so that you know that you might not know this, Noel Cunningham's birthday is June 13th. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Falls on a Friday? Oh, yeah. Dude, Mm -hmm. we had a party at his house on June 13th, 1980, the day the movie happens. Mm -hmm. We had a party and showed the movie to all of our 11 and 12 year old friends. Okay, (laughs) Can you imagine like can you imagine parents reactions when they find out what their kids were watching over at the Cunningham joint? You know, I can because I allow my nine year old daughter. I should edit. You know what? I'm not going to edit this part out. Like. (laughs) Wife today, we're <laughs> Skyping because she's in England. And she goes, so uh, Ada asked me something. I'm like, yep. She goes, uh, Mom, what does it mean to suck a cock? And oh, no. Goes, what? She goes, well, no. Daddy and I were watching a scary movie, and someone said <gasps> suck my cock. And Dad said we'll talk about that at a different time when I'm older. But I really want to know. So she's like, can you kind of be a little careful with what you want? <laughs> Her current favorite movie is Elm Street Three, and One I best. won't let yeah, it, it, and I won't let her watch Blair Witch Project yet because I think it's too scary it's for too her. Too scary, yeah, you're yeah, you're 100 percent right. And she loves. Um, she thought Friday the Thirteenth Two was boring. She could just kids getting drunk and having sex, and I'm like, you have figured out every slasher movie. Yes, at you have. But the I, so so I can. Yes, I can totally envision what other parents are thinking yep. when that's happening. Yep. So, look, for me, um, here, here's the thing that happened with Sean regarding the mask and regarding Jason as, vis-a-vis, you know, the movie he made and then what it became. Um, I, I almost feel like Jason became Frankenstein's monster for Sean. Uh, he had created this thing. And then it got a life of its own that had nothing to do with Sean. It really didn't. And it really went to his protege, Steve Miner, who had been Sean's protege since they did um, Last House on the Left. Steve Miner was a PA on that movie. So Steve had grown up and, and become an assistant editor for Susan Cunningham. He was there the whole time I was around, when Wes was there, all of that. I mean, you got to remember, like, I was immersed in, like, horror, like, hardcore, crazy, lunatic people who were all incredibly sweet and incredibly generous to this little kid who just wanted to know everything. And so when Sean, when, 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 you know, the sackhead version of, of Jason in part two, which by the way, I love part two and I love part two mostly because of the sort of backwoods woods nature of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's dirty and fun and, and creepy. And I, I just think it's a cool movie. And I think Amy Steele is extraordinary. Agree. Um, I'll agree in all counts. Yeah. It's just, it's just a cool movie. Part three, which is not as cool a movie, um, but it gets the mask. It gets that hockey mask. And here's the thing, man, <laughs> like, when something hits, it hits like it just made sense and it's frightening. And there's something about the blankness of it vis-a-vis sort of, you know, Halloween and Michael Myers. There's a blankness to it that is scary because what the hell's behind the mask? I, By the way, it's why I never unmasked Jason in my movie, because I, I, I was like, I'm, I always think when they take the mask off, I go, uh, whatever. It's okay. never scary. Like, it's mm-hmm. just not scary. What The mask is scary. Wondering what's under the mask is scary. And it's something that Wes used to say and that Sean used to say all the time, that once you know the face of fear, it's not scary anymore. And I agree. 
I agree with them. I think they're, they're spot on. So here's the problem. Sean, when I first started work for him, uh, you know, he'd been asking us what we wanted from our careers, myself, Dean, Laurie, Noel, all of us, you know, we, we all lived together at that time. He was always asking us like, what do you guys want to do? What do you want? You know, what do you see your future as? And of course we had, you know, wax rhapsodic about you know, what we would do. And at one point I turned to Sean, I said, but what do you want to do? Like you got a lot of, you got a lot of movies left in you. What do you, what do you want to do? And he turned to me in all earnest and said, I want to win an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I'm telling you, as a 21 year old snot nosed jerk, mm-hmm. I thought, I thought, yeah, right. Well, by the way, that's why he hates the mask. Okay. That mask, that John is the man in the plastic mask. He can't get out from under it. That mask is his whole career. And no matter how many times he's tried to break through with other stuff, he hasn't been able to. And he was developing really cool dramas and thrillers and interesting stuff at the company when I was working for him. And he couldn't get any of it financed. All he could get financed was Friday the 13th. That's it. So not even other genre films, just give us more Friday films. Look, he, you know, he produced the house movies, which, mm-hmm. you know, started off incredibly well and did great money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that died. He, you know, directed Spring Break, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, pretty much a late night Skinamax movie, just, you know, better done. Um, I mean, he, he really did try to remake himself many times over and nobody cared. Nobody noticed. Nobody wanted it. They wanted more Jason. And here's the thing. He, he, his Jason is Ari Lehman at the bottom of a lake. So here's this guy who gets this hockey mask really welded onto his own noggin. And he's the Jason guy. Well, I got to tell you, man, look, I, I get it. Like, you know, when people are set certain limitations, it's why the film I follow Jason Goes to Hell with was a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm not going to be a guy who has a part number after every movie I make. No matter how much I love the genre, I don't want to be pigeonholed by it. I want to be able to make movies. And look, look at what Wes had to go through in order to get Music of the Heart made. He had to make uh, Scream 3. He had to. He had no choice. You make a Scream 3, we'll finance Music of the Heart. That's how it happened. Right. So these, you know, uh, filmmakers want to tell stories. We're storytellers. And we don't always want to tell the same story. We want to tell different stuff. And look, Stephen King, in order to do different things, had to write under an assumed name. Right. Because people wouldn't accept, you know, wouldn't accept it from him. So how do you balance it then when... You have this, obviously, you, I mean, like any of us that have ever done anything creatively, I think would like to know that we have a legacy that we've left behind. Absolutely. And at the, you know, it, one day Sean Cunningham's legacy is going to be, he gave birth to Jason. Yep. Uh, and, you know, as far as, as far as the legacy goes, that doesn't suck. Um, it does not. It does not. I think it's a terrific legacy. I don't think so, he thinks it's a terrific, terrific legacy. So how do you balance that then with like you have financial obligations and you want to make money versus perhaps maybe just walking away from it all and saying, like, I don't want to be known for this. I think I just want to wipe my hand. Like, why not wipe your hands of it? Here's the thing. I think I think he's known for I think it's I think he's, you know, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. I think he's I think he's linked with Jason forever. By the way, in some way, so am I. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you know, we're talking 26 years on, I've made a, a lot of movies and I am still Adam. Jason goes to hell, Marcus. And mm-hmm. you know what? Uh, okay. Like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, that's on me to change my legacy and to do something so interesting that, that it changes that middle name, mm-hmm. um, for Sean. Um, Look, I mean, you know, going through the lawsuit that he's going through now with Victor and all that, and I, you know, I definitely have opinions about that that I won't get into. But, okay. but, um, but uh, Sean really, 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 really likes money. Mm-hmm. Really likes money. <laughs> okay, because we, and, I will be upfront. We haven't posted this episode yet, but we go pretty hard after Sean and Victor for not being able to come to some sort of agreement that is holding more movies or more material up. Let's put it this way. Um, you guys, you guys actually covered some of this in your, in your, uh, your, your podcast about, uh, about Jason goes to hell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I loved, uh, I love when you guys came to this defense, mm-hmm. um, Sean Cunningham on it's on YouTube. You can find it at a convention called me quote unquote, a fucking liar mm-hmm. about the fact that he told me to take the mask out of the movie. So, I have been at festivals all over the world in the last two years because of my movie Secret Santa, which is mm-hmm. you know, which has been lovely. And at those festivals, a lot of times people give me this question if I do a QA. And I always say, turn on turn on your cameras. Like everybody's got a camera on their phone, turn them on <coughs> now. Anyone who wants to post this to YouTube, go for it. But here's my defense of that actual thing. My defense is this. So either Sean Cunningham, who at that point was in his 50s, um, in fact, he was just 50, Sean Cunningham either uh, is this incredibly weak-willed, tiny little man who let a 21-year-old film school graduate tell him what he was going to do with his movie, or, which, by the way, makes him a eunuch, or... And it also makes me the strongest, strongest 21 year old that ever existed. Or Sean Cunningham told me what to do. And I, the 21 year old film student, went, of course, got it. No problem. I'll whip that up tonight. And I did. Which makes him a liar. So either way, I'm good. Either way, I'm either the most powerful young person to ever make a movie or I'm telling the truth. I'll take either one of those. For Sean, either he's a liar or he is nutless. Mm-hmm. So it's his choice. Whichever one he wants to go with, I'll go with it. Yeah, I think we all came down on the side that it like didn't seem very likely no. that Sean was telling the truth about that. About no. um, That seemed to be a little bit of a revisionist history. So yeah. I do want to talk and by about the way, your... And, wait, and, and one mm-hmm. other thing, by the way, sure. when it comes to Victor... Okay, I've wor- I've been I've been an employee of Sean's. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen what Sean does to young writers. I've watched him hand them the contracts that he tried to hand Victor that he did hand Victor. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what Sean did because I've witnessed him do it. And I'm telling you, someone's right and someone's wrong here, and Victor ain't wrong. Okay. So it's easy to go after him because he's a writer and people just think of him as, oh, he, well, he only wrote mm-hmm. the first movie. What does he matter? Yeah. 
Yeah, he sure did. And Sean lives like a king and Victor got a few pennies. I think we're on the same page with that. I think yeah. good. I think you and I are on the same page with that basin. Yeah. I think you'll hear it when we talk in particular it. at the end of Freddy versus Jason part one. Um, you, <laughs> I love that that's got two parts. That's all. Awesome. We, we, oh my goodness. It was oh, awesome. It was like one pee break, four hours. Um, and Good for you guys, that's awesome. Partly because I knew I'm leaving this week. I'm like, yeah. if I could stretch this to two episodes, I won't awesome. miss a week of so. Don't tell Jerry that. But no, it was it. it's, it's great, really fun. Um, so I would talk about your movie though, and one yes. of the things that I think I appreciate now more than when I saw this at 18 is. Uh, your choice to age the characters up for the movie. Mm-hmm. This is the first film where we're not following teenagers or college yep. students, but these are parents, yep. small business owners, television hosts. What was it that, made, aside from just like, let's shake things up, what made you want to go that route? Uh, what made me want to go that route is that uh, the movie Flatliners had just come out only mm-hmm. a couple of years before I, or a year before I, I was writing the movie. And I was fascinated with the fact that here were medical students that are clearly, you know, people in their 20s or even late 20s or early 30s um, that were being followed by teenagers, that people were loving that movie. And I it made me feel relieved because for me, look, I was a kid who grew up with the Friday 13th movies. I grew up a fan and I went, okay, aren't the majority of our fans people who started when I started with these movies? Well, I'm in my early 20s. I'm out of college. <laughs> I'm not a kid anymore. Um, I'm still dumb as a post. Um, but shouldn't we shouldn't we make a movie that reflects the larger audience that's going to come see this movie? And honestly, haven't we had enough dumb teenagers in the woods smoking dope and getting slaughtered? Like, haven't we done that already? I would and, say so. Know, I would say yeah. after eight movies, we yeah. have. And by the way, I know Jerry only wants teenagers, only wants them getting getting high and, and having sex, and he only wants a hockey mask killing them. I totally get it. But I'm telling you what I, I would t- tell Jerry, what I told what I've told everybody who who comes at me with that. I go, great. Look, then my movie might not be for you. And I totally understand that. And I respect it. There are. Five other hockey mask Jason movies for you to watch and one. That's a fake Jason, but he's still on the hockey mask. By the way, when anybody comes at me with that, I'm like, well, part five, Jason doesn't kill anyone, anyone, because <laughs> he's not in the movie. He's just not there. What's um, the reaction to that? Usually it's, well, that's my second least favorite, too. You know, okay, <laughs> cool, cool. Um, but again, look, you know, I, I, it's, um, I, I think that, I wanted to make a movie where the people had something more to talk about than getting laid. And also, here's the other thing. You know, everybody in these movies is having sex. God bless them, as they should. But I thought it was interesting to show the consequence of the teenage sex. So it's why Jessica and Steven have this kid. Mm -hmm. Because they're in their early 20s. And they've made a baby. And now there's that consequence to deal with. So I really did want it to be a more complicated, interesting story about people that had more complicated, interesting lives. And that led us to early 20s. Look, the other thing is, you know, I really wanted the lead of the movie to be Tommy Jarvis. Mm -hmm. And 
I wrote it that way. And then they went, no, you can't have Tommy Jarvis because we didn't buy Tommy Jarvis. Like New Line didn't own that character. So I couldn't do it. So I wanted it to be the continuation of Tommy Jarvis's story where he thinks this is over. And now he's, you know, he's left the problem of Jason behind and gotten this woman pregnant. And now that pregnancy is is going to bring Jason back. And okay, because I think is there was there any point where New Line said approached Paramount and said, "What's your price?" and it was just too high, or was New Line saying, "Nope, this is what you have to work with." Well, here's the thing, and it's funny because you guys got this you got this wrong on on the on the podcast. Ooh, great! The, the move the movie cost two and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. Someone last night said that we made eight in the first week, and, and that was and our budget was half that. No, mm-hmm. it was not. We had two and a half million. So we were making this movie for less money than almost all the Paramount movies had been made, and a decade after the Paramount movies started. Mm-hmm. So we had we had very little money. And by the way, to Sean's credit, and I and I will say this to anybody. First off, look to Sean's credit, he gave me a career. Bless him. God bless him, and I am thankful every day for that career. Second. Sean is a remarkable producer. I don't love his work as a director. Mm-hmm. I love his work as a producer. Mm-hmm. He, he, he understands how to put value on screen like almost no one else I've ever worked with. There's one other person, my partner, Brian Sexton, who is better than Sean in this regard. Mm-hmm. But I am telling you, anything I needed, Sean got it. The problem is, dude, it would be like me asking for, I wanted pop songs in the movie. I wanted there to be some pop songs in this movie. And they looked at me and they laughed. They were like, there was literally not a dollar for a pop song. So if mm-hmm. you want to write a pop song, we'll throw it in the movie. Right. You know, so there, there just wasn't any more money. So, yeah, I wasn't. I mean, look, all of the in-jokes that I put in the movie, all the referential stuff, I had to get all of that for free. If it cost $1, mm-hmm. Sean would have said no. So it was me going around beg borrowing, you know, from anybody I could to get those, to get those items in the film. Mm-hmm. So it was basically stretching a dollar to make a buck 50 at that point, like doing anything and everything you could at you that bet. point. And I know, like, I think I read the effects budget was only about a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, Am less I wrong? Than that. Less than that. Yeah, and I mean, like every penny of that, and then some <laughs> is then on screen. Well, here's okay. So, so here's the thing that with the effects. So Bob Kurtzman, who is truly one of my best friends to this day, mm-hmm. um, we were literally just on the phone with each other yesterday. Um, and Bob does all the effects work for my new company for Skeleton Crew. He does everything, mm-hmm. and he's directing a film for us. So Bob's Bob's amazing. Anyway, Bob uh, Bob and I met on the set of Army of Darkness. We had talked on the phone several times, and then I went out to this desert uh, location they had out in California uh, where they were shooting the castle stuff. And uh, that's when I asked Bob to talk to Sam Raimi to get me the Necronomicon, and Sam handed mm-hmm. it to me in a, in a, in a, in a uh, Ziploc bag. Um, it's a true story. Um, so here's the thing. Bob, uh, Bob had, uh, you know, I said to Bob, I said, look, I said, I'm, you know, I want you to once we had gone through pre-production together and once we'd really been really working side by side, I was, I was a and shop every single day of the, of the pre-production of that show. And after we'd worked together for a few months, you know, creating all this stuff, um, I said to Bob, I said, dude, listen, you know, these effects better than anybody. I want you to be my second unit director. 
because I know that there are going to be times I'm going to say to you, what's the best way to shoot this? Like you show me what this is. And I, I want you to get credit for those shots. I want you to get credit as somebody who helped me make this movie. So Bob and I became inseparable at that point. So here's what happens, especially with the reshoots when we did the, when we added the camper material and the split, mm-hmm. the split Michelle Clooney uh, effect. Right. Um, Bob never said no to me. By okay. we're, we, we are, we are head, heading into those reshoots and Greg Nicotero walks over to me and goes, Marcus, you have cost me so much fucking money. I was like, what? He said, I am, I am out of pocket on this movie now because, Interesting. <laughs> because mm-hmm. they, they had run out of money. And then Bob was like, fuck it. I'm making this great. This is going to be a great movie. And just kept pumping effects into it. So would take guys off other films and have them work on my movie. So I'm telling you, it, I mean, and Greg and I, he, Greg's awesome. We get along. Mm-hmm. And Howard's amazing because he, he sculpted half the stuff in that film. Um, but I'm telling you, it was because of the relationship that Bob and I had that Bob truly, you know, took a buck 50 and turned it into 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, you know, yeah. The effects work in this movie is beautiful, and I think they're extraordinary. It, it's you know, and it's one of those things where you compare it to some of the some of the more maybe the better received Friday films, mm-hmm. and this is so much gorier. There is so yep. much more, and it's not a slasher movie. It is nope. a body horror movie. It mm-hmm. owes a lot to say Cronenberg. Absolutely. Um, so, how much in the back of your head? How much do you think you're thinking? I know that there may be some reaction to having Jason not in it so much. I need to make this the best effects I can. Okay. Here's the thing. I promised myself I would make the single goriest movie ever. Like I was like, and by the way, I was thinking, you know, the elevator opening and the shining, I was not thinking other Friday the 13th movies. I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to make a, a a, a splatter fest, but I, but here was the thing. I'm going to make it with great actors I'm not going to I'm not going to chintz out or cheese out. I'm not going to do a slashed throat in the movie. I'm not doing any of that. We've mm-hmm. seen it. We've seen it a thousand times and we've seen it done incredibly well. So how is it that this movie is going to get differentiated? Well, I'm kind of making a monster movie here. Mm-hmm. And. The other part of it was because I see Jason as a monster. I don't know why everybody wants to make him a pro wrestler. He's not. Mm-hmm. He is a demon. He is a zombie. He's whatever you want to you want to throw at him. I mean, from part six on, he is a zombie. He's zombie mm-hmm. Jason. So okay, so he's not of this world anymore. Um, I don't want to watch him kill in this sort of polite, like oh, a knife. Uh, all right, great. Oh, you hit someone with another machete. Great. To me, it was like, how do we up the ante on this? How do we up the stakes? And the other part of it was, you know, all of the people who become Jason in the movie become Jason in the movie. And that's why I have the reflective shots throughout the film where they see themselves and they see Jason staring back at them. And also, I thought at the end of the movie, I'm going to bring the hero back. I'm going to bring Frankenstein's monster back up out of those floorboards. And in every theater I was in back then, people lost their fucking minds. Mm-hmm. 
And for me, it was like, look, here's the thing. I never thought there would be a backlash about the movie. I never did. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm such a huge fan of these movies. And I was making the movie as a fan that I wanted to see. Right. I and wanted I, to see this movie. And I would say I agree with that. And I would say there's a difference. Like sometimes you watch a movie of a long-running franchise. <laughs> and you can tell the person has either no regard or outright contempt for the characters, Freddy versus yep. Jason, I'm looking at you. Um, and yeah. then you have a movie like this and Jason X where you're like, okay, we want to do something new, right. but we also love what's come before it. Right. How Absolutely. Do you, how do you balance what you want to do as a filmmaker and wanting to put your own stamp on the material versus audi- audience expectation? Um, look, I, I always want to make a movie for the audience. What's what's mm-hmm. frustrating for me about about Jason Goes to Hell is that people's um, need to see the same movie over and over again. Their need to have a McDonald's burger mm-hmm. um, is so frustrating because what I did was I gave them a McDonald's burger that just had some kind of awesome new sauces on it. Mm-hmm. And some cool – like there was a side salad with it, so it was a little nutritious – um, there were better fries. Like I tried to create a better meal out of it. And what happens is that the palate of the audience was such that they'd been fed the same thing so many times that it's kind of like when you get a, give a kid lobster. Well, the kid goes, Ugh, what's that? Well, when that kid grows up, they're going to love that lobster. Right. And that seems to kind of be what's happening with Jason Goes to Hell is that people are growing up. They're watching the movie again and going, wait a second hold on, this was kind of cool. Like, this isn't what I remember it being. And I want to talk about turning that um, burger into, like, beef wellington or lobster in a moment, (laughs) because I I think that's a wonderful analogy, and I think it's very accurate. But I want to backtrack a little bit to what you just said a few moments ago about the actors that were playing Jason were yes. Jason. Yes. You're very vocal about how much you appreciate what Kane Hodder brings to the table as I Jason. Lo- I, I adore him. I, I, I adore him. Can you tell me some of the strengths he brings to the movie when he's assisting these characters that are portraying totally. the character? Totally. Um, yeah, and, and, and it was funny because I know, I know somebody was talking about Stephen Culp and, and some quotes in Crystal Lake Memories um, <laughs> because, because I, think, I think Stephen got annoyed with some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, look, Stephen's a classically trained actor. He's a brilliant actor, and he's an amazing guy. Um, but here's the thing. Kane, what Kane does and what I, why, why Kane, for me, is the best Jason. I understand there are other people who, who love their Jason more, and that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I love Kane is that, and remember, Kane was the stunt coordinator on the entire film. So he was with me every day of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he has an actor's methodology about the way he plays Jason. So a turn of a head, a flick of a wrist, all of those things, that's a that's a body that's you know, that's a Tolkien-esque body of language that this guy's created that he adheres to and that he understands implicitly. And so when I was when we were working with the other actors, with Andy Block, with with with, uh, with Stephen Culp and with my brother Kip at the end of the movie, um, he went through chapter and verse with these actors, how they moved, what they did. And look, yes, I think Stephen Culp, in hindsight, was a little annoyed by it because I think Stephen's the kind of actor who wants to discover the performance, doesn't mm-hmm. want somebody else telling him what the performance is. Of course, my response to that is, Stephen, 
you are now playing Kane. Right. You're playing. I mean, it, let's put it this way. Tom Hanks went and studied the little boy that they got for the beginning of Big. He didn't go the other way around. He didn't tell the kids, study me. He went and studied that child so that he could understand how that child acted and behaved and moved so that he could be accurate to that child in Big. This was the same idea, but with a you know, maniacal serial killer. Um, and so Cain was, was so patient and lovely and funny with each actor that had to become him. And I said to him, by the way, from the beginning, when I handed him the script, and trust me, Kane was disappointed when he saw that he got blown up on page 10. He was not happy. Okay? <laughs> okay. But then when I expressed what I was trying to do and how I wanted it to be, and that I wanted him to teach all of these other actors how to move like him, to give it that performance. Well, he was over the moon about that. Plus, the fact is, I also said, Kane, I want you not only that, but I also want you to play a, a character that is you, where you're out of the makeup. And in fact, I want you to tell yourself to go fuck yourself. I think he calls him a pussy, if I remember. He does. Yep. He does. He says he, he says he wasn't nothing but a big old pussy anyway. <laughs> um, which for me, look, which for me and the audience that got the joke, anyone who knew that was Kane Hodder, oh my God. I mean, it was such a glorious moment in the movie. But, you know, this is also, you know, Kane is also the arm of Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. So he's all over the movie. And so his language was essential to making the film. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I needed to have him by my side every day. So, um, yeah. Aside from Culp, how did the other actors and actresses react to Hodder's kind of direction of them? Great. Great. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember one moment uh, that where anyone balked or anyone mm-hmm. had a problem with it. Okay. Um, my brother Kip is, you know, Again, classically trained NYU circle in the square actor who's award winning and had been working since he was 14 on Broadway. And he was like, bring it on, Kane. Like, tell me everything I need to know about the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do it. Um, and Kip matched moment for moment what Kane would have done. And Kane would even run through the actions so they could watch. Um, Richard Gant, you know, who's an, uh, just an extraordinary actor and a, and a mm-hmm. lovely human being. He also, you know, jumped right in. Look, Steve, by the way, Stephen Culp, for my money, gives one of the best performances in the movie. I, right. I adore him in the film. And by the way, when he becomes Jason, he is he is incredible. He is mm-hmm. actually just frightening in that role. Right. And that's what struck me when I read his quotes and um in Crystal Lake memories is cause yeah. he is so good in that role. And then to yeah. kind of like poo poo it, um, uh, just seemed odd. Well, I also, th- look, I think there's also, you know, Steven at the time when Crystal Lake memories was, was being, was being written, you know, he, he'd agreed to, to do the interview, but let's be honest, he was doing things like 13 days with Kevin Costner. He's playing mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy. Um, he, he had moved on to a, to a part of his career where he's doing other things. And I think that the question just kind of annoyed him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, again, I do not know this. We've never spoken about what's in Crystal Lake memories, Stephen and I, um, and I, and I love Stephen. I've, I've, we've kept in touch, but, um, but I think that there is, um, I, I think when any legit actor is being asked about like, well, didn't you, did Kane teach you how to do the blah, blah, blah? I think he's sort of like, um, you know what? No, I did my own performance. Thanks. So the so hackles go up. Sure. I get okay. it. Yeah. It, that's just yeah. an actor thing. And I, and, I, and I respect it. I respect where he's coming from as well. 
That being said, Kane was there to real. And by the mm-hmm. way, Steven nailed it. Like he's really good. He's so mm-hmm. scary in the movie. Like I love when he goes through that police station. Mm-hmm. Come on now. I mean, he's gr- and by the, I mean, he threw me over the ban- the the, the uh, front counter. That's the first moment in the police station. That's mm-hmm. me going over the counter. And I'm telling you, like he came right at me and grabbed me, and then I had to toss myself over. But he was great and scary. Like, really scary coming at you. So you had your John Landis at American Werewolf in London moment of getting Absolutely. to do your own stunt excellent. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's very funny. In that shot, um, I go flying over the counter, mm-hmm. and the, cam- the camera kept missing me. My, my DP, uh, the brilliant Bill Dill, um, he kept missing the moment, and I had to keep – we reshot re- that, I think, four times. I went over the counter. And, uh, and I, think, I think he actually was missing it just to kind of – just to kind of play with me a little bit because I was doing a stunt. <laughs> and on the fourth time, I landed really hard behind that counter. And you just mm-hmm. hear me behind, you just hear me behind the counter go, God, did you fucking get it that time, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it, Adam. Done. Moving on. <laughs> so speaking of other actors, I think yes. one thing that can be said about this movie, I think this is neck and neck with probably the final chapter in terms mm-hmm. of being like the best acted movie Thank of the entire you. series overall. Thank and I think part of it is like you have a really great cast. Yeah. Um, one of those characters, actually, before I even get to this character, sure. uh, you are his office like Rusty Schwimmer and Leslie oh. Jordan. Oh. See their chemistry together. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. kind of changed your perception of the film. I yep. didn't quite get what that perception was and what it became. So could you talk a little bit about how your perception changed of like what this movie could be seeing them interact with one another? Okay, here's what happened. That actually happened in the casting process, not mm-hmm. in the shooting process. So what 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 happened with the movie was uh, Joey B was actually written uh, based on a guy that I grew up to in New York, grew up next to in New York, a guy named Joe Joe Bologna. Um, and if you, if you, I'm sure you know who Joe Bologna is, but um, the lead of my favorite year, he's an extraordinary uh, storied actor, brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, so I'd written it based on him. Um, so I brought in all these guys to, to read the role, uh, including my uncle, Ned Eisenberg, who, by the way, this is a fun fact. Uh, Ned Eisenberg plays Eddie in the burning. Um, Ooh, okay. Yes. Yes. He's the one who gets killed with the shears on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the raft after nearly raping the girl in the, uh, uh, in the lake, which by the way, talk about foreshadow that that's the first Miramax movie. That's Har- Harvey's first movie. Jesus, yeah. Um, and that scenes in the movie, I'm like, wow, Ned, you, you had to act out Harvey's thing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so I had offered it to all these sort of like New York, uh, you know, sort of tough guy actors. Cause I wanted it to have that flavor. And, uh, so what happened was Rusty came in to read for Joey B's wife. Shelby, okay. mm-hmm. who was the one who ran the restaurant for him, right? Mm-hmm. So she comes in, she gives an audition that was out of control, like just brilliant audition for Shelby. She was amazing. Well, at that point, the assistant casting director had to leave, and I was exhausted. So I said to Rusty, I pulled her aside, I said, Listen, you just booked the role. I don't care who comes in for this role after you, you're it. You're you're my pet. You're done. Done. She's like, You're kidding. You're telling me in the room. I said, I'm telling you in the room. I need a favor. She says, whatever you need. Absolutely. I said, listen, can you read the part of Joey B with the other actresses that are coming into audition? 
I said, I, I still want them to, you know, I still want them to get in the room. I want to meet them and do all that. But mm-hmm. I'm exhausted. Can you just read the Joey B part for me? Because I think you're brilliant. And, and I, I just want a good actor opposite them. So I know what I'm getting. Okay. She says, Abs- whatever you need. If I'm in the movie, you got it. Anything. Right. So she sits down. She starts reading Joey B opposite a bunch of other women that came in to read Shelby. And she is so much better as Joey B than I could ever have imagined a guy doing it. That we finished the day, I turned to her, I said, guess what? You just got an upgrade, you're Joey B. She's like, what? <laughs> I said, you're that character. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing your partners, the, uh, that's going to be a guy as, 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 as you know, I'm, I'm going to switch the roles. You're, you're amazing. And so I turned to my casting directors, Barry Moss and David Giella, who are both, Barry left us a while ago, but David's still around. He's amazing. And they're both brilliant, brilliant men. And, I, and they, were, they were Broadway guys. Like they, they, cast, they cast the entire run of the Cosby show and they cast, um, they cast tons of Broadway shows. So they knew all the best actors in town. And I said, uh, I need a guy. I would really love it. If he was really tiny, because Rusty is so big, I was like, I want someone tiny. And they said, there is only one guy you need to see. And that's when I met Leslie Jordan. And he came in, he read opposite. I had Rusty come in. She read with him, did a chemistry read on the first read. Literally, I was like, we're done. Got it. Cast. And the guy who plays their son, Ward, is... One of my best friends since growing up, one of uh, Nolan, my best friends, Adam Craner. We mm-hmm. grew up together. He's been a friend of mine since we were eight years old. And it's a wonderful warmth between those two characters. And I yeah. love how they go from being like these kind of like grumpy, frumpy, mm-hmm. like this is, you know, like get that baby out of here. We're running a business right. like like babies are banned from diners. Like what the hell? <laughs> it'll, um, be, it'll be just as cute on the fucking street. I get it out to <laughs> <laughs> so, like really protecting the baby and knowing yeah. like there's no good outcome for this. Like knowing, yep. that, I think that really adds a lot of pathos to it. I really enjoy the humor and the warmth they brought. Um, but the character we have to talk about, and I yes. think you know who it is. <laughs> I think you know who it's going. My man, my the man. man has little girls put in hot dogs through donuts. Damn Skippy. Creighton Duke. Is this Stephen Williams just thinking he's in, uh, is this the Stephen Williams life story? And you're just letting him <laughs> roll? Um, like how did this character develop? Cause he is a fan favorite. Um, and he's just fucking awesome. I mean, he's like, amazing. I it. uh, once again, this role, uh, had, we had cast someone else. Um, and it was very different. Uh, originally the bounty hunter, uh, was going to be played by John Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, who's a brilliant theater trained actor from New York, uh, who played Pippin on Broadway was Tony nominated for that show. Um, but also if you look up John Rubenstein, you'd be like, wow, he was in like 10 television series and blah, blah, blah. And his agent pulled him out of it truly like two, two and a half weeks before we were supposed to shoot. (laughs) And we were scrambling and I was like, what the hell? Um, and so, uh, and John and I got along, we, we'd done all these camera tests and, and, uh, he wore this beige duster, right. And a beige hat, right. So he had this whole kind of cowboy look that we wanted. We wanted this sort of Western feel to it, even though he's playing the quint of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, uh, so I said, you know what? I said that 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 happened, and my my cast directors came to me and said, "How do you feel about a black actor playing it?" And I was like, ah, "Sounds great. Just show me show me you know the best people that you think would fit." <laughs> and I saw a number of people, including Yafet Koto, read for it. Um, so I had some great great you know African American actors come in okay. for the role. Well, Yafet was interesting, too, because when I heard he was coming in, I checked with New Line. I said, wow, Yafet Koto is going to come in and read for it. And their response was they didn't want me to cast Yafet because he had already been in Freddy's Dead. Mm. Okay. And they, they didn't want to cross the streams, which, of course, at that point, I, I, was, I, I should have known immediately, like, oh, because you're going to put Freddy and Jason together. So you want mm-hmm. them to be separate universes that will collide and then there won't be any overlap. I got it. Mm-hmm. But here was the thing. Stephen Williams came in to read for it. Him and I, he, he read, and then him and I sat for, I think, about 30 to 45 minutes just talking, just hanging out and talking. And he left the room, and I was like, I don't need to see anybody. By the way, Tony Todd came in to read for Creighton. Okay. He did. And he was great. And he was great. And that voice. Oh, my God, that voice. Right. Stephen came in, and look, Stephen has something that is a very rare thing for all actors. There's a real rarity. Stephen has crazy in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Stephen, for me, is like Mel Gibson, and I don't mean anything politically. I, I understand, mean, yes. There is a light behind his eyes that is so extraordinary and frightening and fascinating. He's, he's one of those guys that brings the moth right to his flame. And that's what I wanted for Creighton. Like, I wanted this guy who was so sadistic, but you can't resist him, that there's something about him that makes you want to follow him into hell. And I knew I needed to have that in the movie because otherwise Steven is never going to listen to anything this guy says. You know, John LeMay's character is going to be lost if he doesn't Mm -hmm. have someone to follow. And so for me, you know, he became Obi-Wan Kenobi of our movie. Um, and the minute Steven jumped on board first, he put on, he put on John Rubenstein's coat and hat and mm-hmm. truly looked, tr- truly looked like a vagrant. He looked like a homeless person walking into Crystal Lake. I was like, okay, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sent my costumer, my costumer was like, she was like, what do I do? Like, what do you want? And I went, I said, listen, I want you to keep the cowboy theme, but I want this guy to walk in. I want for everybody in the room to go, oh. <gasps> Like, if you can t- just take our breath away. I said, I'm leaving it up to you. I said, I'm telling you, I want the, I want the, you know. And I gave her the poster for the Burt Reynolds movie, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. Mm-hmm. If you ever see the poster, you'll see where my idea for Creighton comes from. Okay. Um, but it's, it, he walked onto set the first time in that hat and coat. And I'm telling you, people went out, people were applauding. And he hadn't even acted yet. Because they were like, okay, this is the coolest thing ever, this guy. In the middle of this completely beige town. Like, I really, the, the color palette of the movie was very specific. And Creighton was black blade just tearing through town. Just this completely singular image. No one in the movie is dressed like Creighton at all. Get up. Why don't you blow me, Chief? Hmm? Right after your girlfriend there gets through. That's my lady you're talking about. Well, now, see, she is only your lady because she ain't had a taste of the Duke yet. Careful, careful, Chief. 
I don't think you really know who I am. I know who you are. The last thing we need around here is some freak old bounty hunter causing trouble. I want you out of this town, and I want you out now. Now, that is very colorful, Hugh. Randy! Take him out of my car. I'll be out in a minute. All right, let's go. He's coming for you, Diana, and your daughter. Lock your doors. Uh -huh. Well, I remember when we did our show in the movie, they're like, why is Creighton Duke arrested? And I'm like, I think if we're talking oh, yeah. to a white woman, I'm like, yeah, yes, because yes. he's so, because he's like, he's, <laughs> he's, he, he, he tries to steal Diana's body. That's he's that is actually so in your, that's why. Okay. <laughs> that is he's why. so in your face. Like there's something so sure. transgressive. Yeah. Um, how much, how unfortunate was it? You didn't get to maybe like give him the whole backstory that you wanted to give him. Cause I'd watch just a, I'd we watch a great Duke movie. Uh, well, well, I'll give you some good news on that in a minute. But we, uh, we we um, we did shoot it. We shot his backstory. And by the way, the the uh, when you guys talked about it on the show, you got most you got it close. It's not quite right. Okay. Um, what the what the backstory was, and we always called it the Mary Jane Rotten Crotch speech. Uh, um, the story on on Creighton, which by the way happens exactly where you guys nailed it. I was so excited that you nailed it. It was so mm -hmm. good. It's when he says, give me two minutes. Mm -hmm. Give me two minutes and I'll give you your baby. And in the cut, he just hands her the baby. You're like, what the? <laughs> you said two minutes. That's wow. All right. Time folds where you yep. come from. No, he spent two minutes monologuing. And he told this story about a young, young black guy out, out on, on Crystal Lake with his girl, mm -hmm. who we all fondly called Mary Jane Rottengrotch in, in, in the office. Um, and... Uh, she gets the, the boat gets overturned by something underneath. And this young man watches the love of his young life. Uh, grabbed by Jason Voorhees and dragged down to the depths of Crystal Lake. And he dives in to try to get her. He keeps trying to get her and she's just gone mm -hmm. and never to be seen again. And he, from that day forward, and he's 17, I think in the story, um, he pledged, he would not stop until he avenged her until he found out what that monster was. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of his life is all about getting Jason Voorhees. So he becomes a bounty hunter, but only comes this detective to search out who this, who is this guy? What is he, what magic is there? And to get enough money to be able to, to hunt him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's his whole life is hunting Jason. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, that was the, that was the backstory on him. So it was his girlfriend. It wasn't his wife. It was his girlfriend. Uh, but it was his first love. It was his crush and he's never loved since. And that um, is just such fertile ground to be explored. And I think, isn't it, isn't it really is. It really <laughs> is. So look, here's the thing because the rights are such a freaking mess. I mean, just mm -hmm. such a mess. Um, you know, one of the things that, that skeleton crew has been doing for quite some time is we, we are working on a project for Steven and I to do together. Mm -hmm. Um, his manager and I have been talking about, you know, trying to put this whole thing together. And, and, uh, and so, uh, I, I am going to work with Steven again. It is something inspired by the work that we've done together before. Um, you know, it's not Creighton, but it's, it's the it's the next best thing. So and it's so, Creighton esque. It's Creighton adjacent. Yes. Yes. Okay. 
adjacent. I think that would work. I think that would work. So I do have to ask the um, little girl pushing a hot dog through a donut line. Um, Improv scripted because that's it's a head scratcher. That's okay. Um, here's the thing uh, that that and I take no responsibility for that, that line whatsoever in the writing. That was Dean Laurie. Dean Laurie wrote that line. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful piece of writing. It is also the crux of Dean's entire sense of humor. Um, <laughs> it really is. And it's funny when you realize that Dean, you know, Dean was a writer and executive producer of things like Arrested Development. So Dean has gone on to write big comedy. He wrote Major Pain. Um, he wrote my wife and kids for, for, for Damon Wayans. Um, I mean, Dean is, Dean is a really funny dude and very Mm -hmm. bizarre. And when he wrote that line, I remember I almost pissed myself when he just said the line out loud to me, we were writing at like three o'clock in the morning. And he said that line and I was like, dude, no one will ever forget it. Like it'll be the most quotable thing from this movie. And it was now to, to, it, it was funny because, um, there's that scene, the very opening of the movie when Creighton is watching them, the FBI blow up Jason, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the script, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. He's just sitting on the hill watching this. And Dean walks over and he goes, he's like, God, it just seems really kind of plain. He's just sitting there. I said, yeah. I said, Stephen, come here. I said, I want you to just watch this and you know that they didn't get him. And I just want you to say, I don't think so. And Stephen was like, oh, hell yeah. Got it. Yep. And, and Dean, Dean literally walked over to me and kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> holy shit. I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's a good line. It ain't sticking a hot dog to a donut good, my man. It mm-hmm. never will be. Um, so the, the writing process in the movie was actually incredibly fun for Dean and I. Like, we, we were really good bouncing stuff off of each other and complicating things and Again, we both have a sense of humor. And by the way, you know, look, my, fri- my favorite Friday 13th movie is part six. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it because of the sense of humor, because I find that movie to really, I think it takes itself very seriously and not seriously at all at the same time, which is what I love about it. And so I wanted Jason Goes to Hell to have that same kind of sense of humor that like, you know, these movies don't have to be morose. By the way, I mean, I think a current trend in horror movies right now is that everything is so damn depressing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man, I grew up on horror movies that were fun. I'm going to push back on yeah. that a little bit. I would sure. say we would we reach the nadir of that with, and I like this movie, Rob yeah. Zombie's Halloween 2. I think that we came from, a, from say, 03 to 09, where horror was very dark, dark, and we were in a dark time, and we're in an even darker well, time. We're in a right darker now. time now. And here's the thing: I wait. I, I would agree with you in that that's the low point of sort of grisly mm-hmm. bleakness in the sort of hostile saw Rob Zombie's Halloween sort of like mm-hmm. just shit. Like you're in the shit. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about that. I'm talking about the midsummer crying for two hours and 40 minutes. Sure. I'm talking well, about this like malaise. That's Ari Aster's thing. What Ari Aster needs a mental health counselor. And seeing that I'm graduating <laughs> on Tuesday with my I master's. Think, I think you need to reach out, man. I, I think it'll help. So. I, think yeah, it'll I feel help. like Absolutely. I just want to be like point out on the doll where you were touched, dude. It's like, totally it's, true. 
It's uh, so true, dude. So there's true. movies like the new Child's Play is really funny. I thought Crawl, yeah, it is funny. It is Crawl funny. was like really fun. Um, you know, Get Out I thought had like bits of wicked humor. Us had bits of humor in it. Um, there are some slogs. There's definitely that, but there are also some really funny out there type yeah, of. Yeah, I just, I just think, I think, I think that the genre in general is getting a little self-important. Because it's become uh, look, it, it's a it's a blessing and a curse because the genre is now way more respected. Shit, when I did Jason Goes to Hell, I mean we were we were considered porn. Mm-hmm. Like no one treated us like we were legit movies, even though we were the movies that kept every every one of the studios afloat. Right, we cost nothing, and all we made was profit. Mm-hmm. And you'd have a hundred million dollar stinker that starred a bunch of big name, you know, actors and that would get awards. Yet we're the ones holding those movies up. But now they're because they make more money. <laughs> um, there is more respect for horror. I also think the audience grew up that loved horror. So they became executives and, you know, it all trickles up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the curse part of that blessing is then suddenly when we start to cast big names in horror movies and things of that nature, we start to lose that sense of humor. And for me, you know, you even watch the Todd Browning, you know, Universal movies, or even better, the RKO movies. Yep. They're all wickedly funny. Oh, anything James Whale did, this old Absolutely. dark house, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, they're uproarious. I mean, the Invisible Man. Oh, is an amazing oh. comedy. It's one of yes, the funniest is. movies yes, of all time. Yes, it is. And and it's and I think that to some degree we're losing that little bit in horror. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, not entirely. There are a lot mm-hmm. of people. You know, I think Ready or Not looks fun, and I think that's going to be. I think that's going to be clever and, and well done. Um, I, I think there is. You know, I think there's space. My my latest movie, Secret Santa, um, is flat out horror comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's gory, gory, gory. It's, you know, Bob Kurtzman coming mm-hmm. back to all the effects. Um, but it is really funny. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to carry a little bit of that torch for, for our genre. Look, I, I, I will say things like the babysitter. I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Like, okay. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I always enjoy when, so- I enjoy when someone embraces the genre and can still poke fun at it without mm-hmm. poking fun at the people who love the genre. Yes. And that's like, for me, look, I have so much respect for Cabin in the Woods. I have tremendous mm-hmm. respect for that movie, even though I get why people didn't connect with it. There, mm-hmm. There's something, there's something about, look, I think the ending is a problem. Um, the beyond the deus ex machina of it all, I think. Mm-hmm. The fact that our female lead is willing to murder somebody to, you know, I, I, that bugged the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I love the fuck you to all genre that that movie gives. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's brilliant. And I, and I look, I love Tucker and Dale versus evil. Same. Mm-hmm. Great movie. It's just a yeah. great movie. And when you, and you know, when you watch on the same disc, you know, Tucker and Dale are evil where you see the movie from the kid's point of view. Have you ever watched that? I have not. I didn't even know that existed. Dude, it's on, it's on the disc of the movie. It's on the Blu-ray. There's, a, there's an, an, an extra on the disc. It's like a 45-minute version of the movie called Tucker and Dale Are Evil. This is why and streaming it, is bullshit. Okay, I got to Yes, okay. yes. 
boy, do I agree with you on that. Look, I mean, I got to tell you, we have to face, say physical media. Mm-hmm. We are, we are, we are slitting the throat of anybody who cares about any interesting content that goes along with these movies. Um, and, and it's, I, I think it's essential. T- Tucker and Dale are evil. You will love, you will be mm-hmm. blown away. By I will that. definitely watch that. It's so I, clever. And- on those lines too, like I love your, I love pretty much anything that Wingard and Barrett have done almost, but yep. I love your next. I I love, dude. It's it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. I think it's I think it's a remarkable movie, and it's one of those movies that I don't. I, when I meet genre people who don't know that movie, I'm like, mm-hmm. then you don't love this genre. genre. All right. So I want to be respectful of your time here. So I Please. do. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Of or are you, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm um, good. So let's get back to the beef Wellington um, or the <laughs> okay. lobster. So sure. at the time, the reaction to Jason goes to hell's it's mixed and sure. oh, yeah. fans can be vocal. Fans can be cruel. Now this is thankfully a pre Twitter time when this comes out. Yes. How did the critique of the movie affect you at the time? Like what were some of the toxic things you heard at that time? I got to tell you something. I heard very little of it. Um, okay. Uh, because the the crazy thing about Jason Goes to Hell is it got better reviews than almost all the other Friday Thirteenths. Mm-hmm. The reviews were good um, because I think the critics, unlike the audience, was like, "Wait a minute, this is well acted, and it's got pace, and it's kind of funny, and this is not what we were expecting." Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I mean, even the New York Times gave us a good review. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Washington Post loved the movie. So there were a number of things there that were, um, you know, that, that, that critics kind of, uh, held on. By the way, we got slaughtered by a ton of critics as well. Don't, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Um, look, the fact that the movie opened number two in the U S under, we, the only thing that beat us was the fugitive. Mm-hmm. Um, the fugitive had come out the week before and we knew we're never going to beat the fugitive. It's never going to happen. But the fact the movie did, you know, open with $8 million and again, $8 million in 1993 was a big deal. Like that mm-hmm. was the, the front page of variety, uh, on Monday, on Monday morning was top spot goes to fugitive rest of box office goes to hell. So you're riding pretty high come Monday morning. Dude, my first two meetings, I met with Robert De Niro in Tribeca, and I met with Francis Ford Coppola at Sony. Neither of those. Those were my suck, first right? two meetings. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I uh, I was courted by a bunch of people, and New Line was doing a three picture deal with me, and then Ted Turner bought New Line, right. threw all the horror people out. All of us, we all lost our deals, um, and Coppola went bankrupt again. And I was supposed to do a ninja zombie movie mm-hmm. for, for Zotra. With Robbie so, De Niro? Please say with Robert De Niro. Oh, dude, now I have no idea. I, I just know yeah, Francis was in love with horror. He had just done Dracula. He was doing Frankenstein. Like, he loved horror. So he wanted, he just wanted me to, like, create, mm-hmm. which I was psyched about. Um, and then I got offered a ton of horror sequels. Like, a ton. But, dude, like, you know, Pumpkinhead 2 and Amity. And, you know, Leprechaun back to the hood, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was like all that kind of stuff. And I was like, no, man, I, I'm, I don't want to I don't want to be a part number guy. Like I knew a lot of those guys and I have respect for anybody who loves being that guy. If you love being that guy. Awesome. I I'm telling you, I met a lot of those guys who hated being that guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, no, I want to I want to say original stuff. I want to say new things. 
Um, so I, I disappeared into, you know, I, I, I went into indie filmmaking and, uh, my second film was a big hit at Sundance. Mm-hmm. I was all over the world. It was one I was telling you, you know, uh, myself and Karin Kazuma, the mm-hmm. two of us were everywhere together. Um, cause she had done girl fight. I had done let it snow. And, um, and suddenly I had all these jobs in TV and I was doing other stuff. Um, but I yearned to be able to go back to horror and tell original stories. Mm-hmm. That was really what I wanted to do. Um, in the meantime, so I wasn't really listening. There wasn't any noise in my ear about Jason Goes to Hell. Like, it wasn't getting to me. And by the way, I had seen the movie theater several times in packed houses where people were applauding and losing their minds and having a great time. So it's like, great. Audience loves the movie. I'm happy. And then the internet happens. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's someone who's patient zero on this. It's been, it's been told to me in the past, and I never remember who this person is. But I guess there was some guy who did some horrible rant about mm-hmm. the movie and sort of set all of this in motion as far as the kind of vitriol that came out about the film. Um, here's the thing. I get it. If it's not your bag, it's not your bag. And no movie is going to be for everybody. That's a a silly fight to have. Um, When I talk to most haters of the movie, even if they've wished me ass cancer, which has happened a couple times, um, I'll ask them pretty point blank. So, okay, so you hate that I blew Jason up 10 minutes in. Yeah, yeah, fucking sucks. Okay, cool. Um, you hate that there's not a hockey mask throughout the whole movie. Yeah, what the hell? I mean, that's that's the move. That's Friday for Teeth is a hockey mask. And I go, well, meh, hang on. Hockey mask didn't show up for three movies. So it's not really Friday the 13th. It's kind of what Jason became. But I hear you. That's the icon. I get it. Okay, so you don't like that there's a hockey mask in the movie. Did you like the kills? Oh, dude, some of the best kills in any of the movies. Okay. Um, did you like the look of Jason? Yeah, it's badass. It's fucking fucked up and weird. It's really cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, uh, who's your favorite Jason? Kane Hodder. Kane Hodder rules. Okay. Um, did you think the acting was good? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did you find the characters like at the diner were funny? Oh, man. They were th- th- them and the, and the people in part five. Like those are the best. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you don't like that there's not a hockey mask in more of the body of the film. That's really it. Right. That's really it. Yes, body hopping goes along with the mask. Got it. But that's the complaint. Yep. And that's when I go, great, so you want a Mexican wrestling movie. That's what you want. (laughs) Like, that's what you want. You want a guy in a mask with a machete. That's it. That's what you want. And by the way... The remake gave you that. I and don't you know shit a lot on the remake, too. I don't know a lot of people who love the remake. Right. So I go, they gave you what you wanted in that. Boy, did they. I mean, they really gave you what you wanted. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did it play out? Was it fun? Was that a good time? Well, so, I'll give you my, uh, my really brief thought on the remix. I enjoy please. it, I think, more than most. Sure. Sure. And I tend to be pretty forgiving. Like, I, I just like mm-hmm. stuff. Totally. The difference between, let's say, Friday the 13th in 2009 versus 1980 to 1984, yep. 80 to 84, I, I got kids that I cared about. Yeah. Like, Jerry's very fond of saying, I agree, if you took Jason out of the final chapter, you have a phenomenal coming-of-age teen comedy. Absolutely. Uh, 
You don't get that in two, you didn't get that in horror movies in the mid to late aughts. You got car- and maybe it's because I'm older and maybe I'm wrong, but I work with a lot of like high school students in my sure. role and they're not like this. There's a lot of great kids. These yeah. are mean, yeah. ugly, despicable kids. I don't want to root for the killer in a movie. I want to feel bad when these kids I get agree. off. Totally agree with you. That's what I think the biggest complaint is with the remake. But by the way, look, here's the other part of it. You know, you watch Wes Craven put together the group of kids in Scream. Mm -hmm. Those are kids. Like, those are kids that are likable. They're kind. They're fun. They're good friends. And when they betray each other, it's horrible. You're Mm -hmm. really, like, gut-punched by that. Right. So – uh, I totally agree. The other problem is by 2009, everything is an Abercrombie and Finch, Fitch uh, yes. model ad. Everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, I, I actually I have a fondness for the remake of Texas Chainsaw, Marcus Nispel's movie. Mm-hmm. I have a fondness for that movie, even though and in spite of the fact that everybody mm-hmm. in that van is a freaking supermodel. And the greatness of Toby's movie is that it's a group of people that look like you might hang out with. Right. And there's a relatability. Look, I mean, in, in the, by the way, uh, there was a, there was a woman I wanted to cast in Jason goes to hell who I was not allowed to cast. And mm-hmm. I kid you not the lead, the person who's, who's going to play Carrie Keegan's role uh, originally mm-hmm. um, was uh, an actress named Lori Holden, who, if you watch the walking dead, she was um, Andrea for the first mm-hmm. three seasons. Yep. Um, Lori's, Lori's a personal friend. We, she's awesome. She's an amazing person. And she was a, she's a brilliant actor. And she uh, was, you know, a close buddy who hung out with us all the time. She came in for the audition. She blew everybody out of the water. She was incredible. And Sean turned to me and said, you can't have her. And I said, why? He said, she's too beautiful. Mm-hmm. They'll hate her. The audience will hate her. Mm-hmm. I think there's a whole psychology behind that as well that has less to do with Sean's point and more to do with Sean's psyche. That mm-hmm. being said, I was not allowed to hire the prettiest girl. I couldn't mm-hmm. have her. I had to have a fight about Allison Smith. Mm-hmm. And I said, because I had seen Allison Smith when I, was, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I saw Allison play Annie on Broadway. She was the second Annie on Broadway. Right. And I saw her play Annie, and I, I turned to Sean. I said, you're not taking Annie away from me. I literally said that and he gave in on that one but dude I'm telling you like this weird model casting I I just go you're you're missing you're missing the point on horror movies they have to represent the audience otherwise the audience isn't frightened they don't identify with these kids if they're all gorgeous what's the point what I love about let's say even scream you know Jamie Kennedy who's not a bad looking guy but he's not a model right He's just he he looks like the teenage version of you know of Shaggy from Scooby Doo. Right. So totally you're like, agree. I, I totally get that agree. guy. You know, it's why the new it's why the new Spider Man movies are so good because you recognize those kids. You go, oh, I I could have been one of those kids. I like well, those kids. You recognize those kids, and those kids also reflect the kind of world we live in now as well, yes. which is really wonderful to see. Absolutely. Um, which is, I think, really important to see. So yeah. I have just um, two things left here really quick. Cool. Um, so you had mentioned Jason Lives, and I had actually put that in my notes. Like, similar to Jason Lives, Goes to Hell 
has a really tongue in cheek sense of humor mm-hmm. and there's a sense of awareness. Like you know what yes. you are at that yes. point. I'm thinking yes. in particular, John LeMay's line about you're going to go to the lake, smoke a little mm-hmm. dope, have a little sex and get murdered. It's mm-hmm. a it's great delivery on that line too. Yeah, it's it is. perfect. Yeah. Um, how do you feel that now that maybe self-awareness and being tongue in cheek is better received? How have modern contemporary audiences received or reevaluated Jason goes to hell in 2019. Well, here's the thing. I, um, I got offered, uh, mm-hmm. um, right after Jason goes to hell. Hmm. Okay. And the reason was because of all the stuff that I did in Jason goes to hell. That was referential, which by mm-hmm. the way, up until that point, no one was doing that. Just no one was doing that. It wasn't it, while, while Freddie, while I'm sorry, while Fr- uh, Friday six was, um, absolutely a little more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Remember my film, like it made it, 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 it poked all the holes in the genre. The first 10 minutes of that movie is a Friday the 13th movie in 10 minutes. It's like, right. it's like the speed bump version of a Friday the 13th movie. Um, she makes every bad choice that every young, beautiful woman makes in a Friday the 13th movie. Right. All, all in the span of six minutes. She's done everything you're not supposed to do. Um, so including getting naked and taking a shower in this mm-hmm. dark cabin for what and for who? I mean, it's all ridiculous. But that was the point was that we're flushing out Jason. We're doing all the things that get Jason to show up. Um, so the movie was unique in that way. I think when people look back on it and realize that we were pre-screen, there's a lot of people going, wait a second. There's a lot of what Scream is in this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and look, the fact that I was universe building that I think is really catching on with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people lost their minds because I said, Jason's a dead eye. Well, he is. So there, um, <laughs> I, I love people like that's not Canon. I'm like, no, no, it's Canon. Mine's a Friday the 13th movie. Your fan film is not a Friday the 13th movie. Mm-hmm. Mine's a Friday the 13th movie. It is Canon. Sorry guys. I mean, um, you have the Necrocom- Necronomicon in the movie. So, right. Well, I have that and the dagger, right? Sam Raimi approved. I, I, I put those things in the movie for very specific reasons. Cause Mm -hmm. my, my, my impression of, look, I always love when people think like the timeline on a Friday 13th, don't mess with the mythology. What, what mythology? Oh my goodness. Yeah. From movie to movie. What Mm -hmm. are you talking about? I mean, and so, yeah, good. I love part four, but Rob spends years hunting down his sister that was murdered that weekend. Yes. Yes. So that's I mean, it's not ridiculous. Time, right. Right. Um, and look, here's the thing. I wanted to put a salve on the franchise that would fix all of the timeline problems. If Pamela Voorhees makes a deal with the darkness to bring her Jason back and he's a deadite, whatever form of deadite you want to call it, or maybe a deadite we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. If he is hell's assassin, well, then he can be any size, any shape, any color, any, he can be anything and he can change. So he can get melted down by acid in a New York sewer and come back. He can do all of that because he's not of us now. He's not a zombie. He doesn't live by zombie rules either. He is this creature of hell. Right. He is the hell demon. Well, if you're willing, if fans are willing to accept Jason as a zombie, which we are, I don't see yeah. why we can't accept him as other things as well. Absolutely. And why not so, something, why not something so super cool as a deadite? Yeah. Come on. So I want to ask one last question, actually two sure. last questions here. Um, 
I want to talk very briefly about the movie you didn't get to make. So the end of Jason Goes to Hell has that shot, the one yes. where audiences really go bananas for it. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to set the stage for Freddy versus Jason? Um, here's what happened with, okay. So I had been putting in all of the stuff like the Necronomicon, like the crate from Creepshow, um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, jungle gym from the birds. I had put in all this great stuff. I had all these great props and all this. And I was with Dean and Noel in our apartment in Venice. Um, and I can say this now cause it's legal. Uh, they were getting stoned to the bejesus. I personally do not partake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was the clear headed one, which is really showing you how low the bar was that night. <laughs> um, and I said to the guy, we were trying to come up with cool things that we could put in the movie. And I said, I suddenly had this moment of clarity and I went, wait a second, doesn't New Line own Freddy outright? Isn't it 100% their property? And they were like, yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. So I immediately, I jump up and it was, this was in the evening. I call Mike DeLuca and Mark Rodesky at home. I get both of them on the phone. I said, guys, I want Freddy's glove. <laughs> and they were both like, for what? And I described what I wanted the last scene of the movie to be. And they, I mean, the laughter and excitement and joy in their voices. I've never heard two uh, film executives ever that happy, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a few days later, uh, the, you know, a locked wooden box with the glove in it showed up at our plate at our, at our studio with truly there was a security guard who held it the whole time. He was with it the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, they really treated like Fort Knox, which is so funny when you consider I got the Necronomicon in a Ziploc bag. (laughs) Um, so, so the, uh, so I knew I wanted to drag Jason to hell. And since Freddie, since Freddie's dead, it already happened. I was like, well, Freddie is in hell. What, if I have all these demons coming up out of hell to pull Jason down, what would be better than to have, you know, head demon number one all of a sudden be Freddy Krueger? That's awesome. So, by the way, that had nothing to do with making a Freddy versus Jason movie. That had mm-hmm. to do with Adam going, I'm sending Jason to hell. Freddy's already there. Who better to pull him down? Sure. Okay. But after that, though, you had some yes. ideas about what Freddy versus Jason would be that well, involved survivors yes. of the previous. So what was yes. your, what was your idea? My concept for Freddy versus Jason was that we open in a steam room in mm-hmm. Freddy's steam room. And Freddy is, he's got a teenager. He's doing the usual Freddy Krueger thing. And uh, just as Freddy's about to slash through this kid, suddenly he hears something, turns to camera, and a fist just punches right into Freddy's face, and Freddy goes flying back. And there is Jason in Freddy's domain. And the two of them starts wailing on each other, and this teenage kid actually runs away, right, tries to run away, and mm-hmm. Jason just throws his machete behind him, you know, skewering the teenager to the wall of the, of the you know, of, of the, uh, just the, the, the uh, boiler room. Mm-hmm. And so you have this battle royale between Freddie and Jason just beating the shit out, just tearing each other to pieces. And suddenly the floor underneath them breaks and splits. Mm-hmm. And they're both on two opposite pieces of this flooring and flames are just coming up between them. And you hear this booming voice, you know, basically saying, you know, enough. And you realize we're in hell. And 
Freddy and Jason are just constantly finding each other in hell to just keep beating the shit out of each other. Right. The two rivals. And the idea was that both of them are hell's assassins. They've both been sent to hell by means of how they you know, were dispatched in the movies. And there's really only room enough for one of them. So they are sent back to our plane. And they have to get a certain number of souls, including Tommy Jarvis, Nancy, Tommy Jarvis and Nancy, and we had baby Stephanie grown, grown up. She had mm-hmm. grown, she was a, she was a, a young teen. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chase is on for them to get these souls. The problem is, is that if either one of them gets them, the other one goes to hell forever and hell's assassin stays on earth. So either Freddie or Jason is going to get to stay as the, you know, the, the battle royale winner. So you have a definitive winner in your concept. Yes. And here's what's great. The person protecting Nancy and Tommy mm-hmm. is Creighton Duke in a back brace. Beautiful. So he survives. So he survives. And he's the one, you know, on the road trip, fr- road, the road trip to hell, keeping them safe from mm-hmm. Freddie and Jason. Can you reveal your winner? Of course, it was Jason, man. (laughs) (laughs) So how close, how close does this come to at least go into script? Uh, We met with them. We, I had had several conversations with all the powers that be over Mm -hmm. this. Um, Here was the problem. It it, it almost became a life is too short scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, You also can remember Ted Turner bought New Line and truly all horror ended at New Line. I mean, that's a big part of why those two franchises went to Mm -hmm. sleep for so long. Um, was Ted Turner. So uh, it really stalled out in the earliest stages only because, dude, they didn't write any movies for Freddy vs. Jason for a long time. And then they just started commissioning scripts left and right from everybody. I mean, I've read like six or seven of those screenplays. Oh, my God. I mean, dude, the ideas were so bad. I was like, I- how— how is this so complicated, guys? Like it, and, and it was everybody trying to reinvent the genre, which I found really funny and ironic since, you know, since I took so much heat for, for reinventing Jason. Um, and they just weren't very good. Like, the scripts just weren't great. So you, you weren't into the idea of a um, burned, scarred cult leader named Dominic Necros taking the— no. No, front and not. center in a Jason versus Freddy movie. No, that, I really wasn't. That didn't I tickle wasn't. the pickle. No, I didn't. I didn't find it. I didn't find that. I again. <laughs> wh- look, let's put it this way. In Jason Goes to Hell, Jason is still the bad guy the whole way through the movie. I don't mm-hmm. care what body he hops into, and Creighton puts it perfectly. You know that he wears a, he wears a, a person's skin like you wear a suit of clothes. Mm-hmm. It 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 was always Jason. Jason's my villain. I don't want to. Halloween six, this and mm-hmm. make somebody else a worse villain than Jason. What's the point of that? Like mm-hmm. I, 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 he's the big bad. He's the shark in the water. You don't want jaws to have some guy in a black coat who's controlling jaws from the land. You just want jaws. Right. Agree. So Absolutely. you got Freddie, you got Jason. You don't really, I, I don't need the predator to suddenly show up. Right. You know, so no, I'm 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 not a fan of any of that. I, I I find I find the two of them more than enough. What I look, what I also think is is hilarious is when 
you put Jason to sleep on a couch and then have a, a, an executive board meeting around a table where you discuss how you can kill Freddie while Jason's taking a nap. I don't, I don't find that particularly threatening either. So, um, so, so yeah. So what's next for you? What do you have? You mentioned a project with Stephen Williams. Yep. What do you have in the works right now? I've read there's a few different things that look pretty interesting. Yes, 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 yes. We're doing a bunch of stuff. Well, as Secret Santa uh, is going to be on VOD in October, so mm-hmm. we're really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, you know it's it's been in 22 festivals worldwide, and mm-hmm. uh, it's won it's won a couple of those festivals as Best Picture. Mm-hmm. By the way, not in horror festivals either, where it won Best Picture, which is kind of amazing. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know it's getting it's getting a lot of love, which is awesome. Um, that is comes from my from the company that I formed with my wife Deborah, who has been my mm-hmm. writing partner for the last couple decades, and mm-hmm. also my best friend. Uh, Brian Sexton, who is uh, truly the most remarkable producer I've ever worked with. So the three of us formed Skeleton Crew a couple of years ago. Um, Secret Center was the first one out of the gate. We have um, several things. Hell's Bells is the, uh, the, the, the Stephen Williams project, Hell's Bells, mm-hmm. um, which takes place uh, on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, uh, he is, he is a badass motherfucker. Uh, and it is cool. It is a cool, it's, it's the coolest thing we've ever written. So, uh, love that project. Then we've got a great movie that we're doing called Velocity, which I can't really say too much about okay. only because, only because we are in contracts right now, but that's going to be the very next thing that's shot for skeleton crew but it's 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 a very cool movie we mm-hmm. also have um fat camp massacre tell me about fat kid camp oh, massacre please oh it's so good so fat camp massacre was brought to us by uh two remarkable producers and a, and a lovely writer who's all they're all all three of them are terrific actresses as well um heather alt sarah cheney and uh lindsey hollister lindsey hollister mm-hmm. it, you ever see um uh, the remake of Get Smart, the, the Steve Carell version? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Steve Carell has a very famous scene in that movie where he does the tango with this mm-hmm. plus-size woman. Uh, that plus-size woman is the remarkable actress Lindsay Hollister who wrote mm-hmm. the first draft of Fat Camp Massacre. They brought us this project, and it uh, and Deb and I fell in love with them, fell in love with what they were trying to do, and we ended up shepherding the script and then rewriting with Lindsay, and now we've written it together with her. Um, that movie is, uh, for people of size, what Get mm-hmm. Out was for people of color. Okay. I'm one of those people of size, so Love I'm it. very interested. Mm-hmm. Love it. It is, it is the movie, look, <laughs> being large or being too skinny in this mm-hmm. country, in our society, it's the last place that people think they can just be completely forward with you mm-hmm. in the way that they speak to you about, about your body. Right. As though anybody should have anything to fucking say about your body. Um, and the amount of bullying that goes on, the amount of body dysmorphia um, is so shameful and so disgusting. Instead of letting people be who they are and feel good about who they are. And I, look, I'm not talking about being unhealthful. I'm not talking about any of that. Um, but the truth is, is that to shame people for any of this is so freaking disgusting in my opinion that when they brought us the concept for this movie um i was so overjoyed i, I you know i've had trouble with my weight my whole life mm-hmm. um, i've struggled with that as have most of the people that i know quite frankly and this is the movie that 
the the uh, the tagline of the movie is "Get ready for the real Hunger Games." Oh boy! Okay, and okay. it is it's just a middle finger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the original the original tagline of the movie was "Never trust a skinny bitch," um, <laughs> but I I I, ch- <laughs> I changed that because I was like, listen. People who are people who are really skinny also have to deal with right. this bullshit too. Yeah, and, well, the phrase is "jolly fat guy," not "jolly vegan." You know, right, right, absolutely. So, so, so the you, movie, the movie is really it's political, it's funny, but it is brutal. It is a brutal fucking movie. When can um, we see yeah. that? Uh, we should be shooting that movie next April. So uh, I would say, yeah, I would say probably the, uh, the beginning of 2021. We'll definitely keep our eye on that. Yeah. So before we hit record, you mentioned you were actively seeking projects and you were looking for yep. a diverse lineup of people, female filmmakers, yep. filmmakers yep. of color, queer Absolutely. filmmakers. Yep. If where can people reach out to you? Right. And not to necessarily pitch, but if they want to reach out to you. Where do the professionally and online? Where are the places Absolutely. to go? Here's here. Okay, here's the best place to catch me. Okay, um, the truth is, is that uh, I still rely tremendously on Facebook. I think Facebook mm-hmm. is fantastic, and Facebook Messenger. Anybody can can hit me up there. So that's mm-hmm. and I'm easy to get. I'm just Adam Marcus um, at Adam Marcus. Um, you can also get me on Twitter at at, at Adam Marcus thirteen mm-hmm. or on Twitter at at Skeleton Crew Pro. And okay. we are, and I'm also on Instagram at at Skeleton Crew Pro. Excellent. So that, that that that's the best way way to get a hold of me. Look, you know, and and by the way, one of the things we didn't talk about about Jason Goes to Hell is that you know one of the things I'm most proud about that movie and where I think the movie is aging incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first Friday Thirteenth Friday Thirteenth movie where the director demanded there was as much, if not more, male nudity than female nudity. Right. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is this very weird, and I know you guys talked about it, very weird and very wonderful interracial uh, homoerotic shaving scene and then kiss. Yes. Um, Thank you. I forgot yes. to ask about what the hell's with the shaving. Uh, what the hell's with the shaving? Honestly, the 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 whole thing – okay. <laughs> I knew there was nothing I could show the audience that would really scare the crap out of them. I know I can cut people up. I can tear bodies and have, I can do all that stuff. And it's great fun and everybody cheers and has a great time. But for me, I was like, who is my audience and what's going to actually get the core of their fear? I love, I have never once been asked by a female uh, audience member. What's up with that homoerotic shaving scene? Never Mm. once. Dudes, all the dudes ask about it. And when I turn to them, I go, why? You felt uncomfortable during that scene? That really bugged you, didn't it? Like, oh, <laughs> really, really got under your skin, didn't it? Mm-hmm. That's why it's there. I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, I want to thank you, Adam, for being so generous with your time. You got uh, I them. really appreciate it. I have one last. So we, we all believe that someone should have find someone to love out there. We think everybody deserves that. And sometimes yeah. I wonder about Jason in particular because he's – pretty solitary so if jason if jason were to date any of the muppets what muppets do you think he would go out with and where would good good question um wow you know what i think um because when i think of uh when i think of jason i it makes me think of jaws from Mm -hmm. uh moonraker and the spy who loved me the 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 bond villain jaws uh, remember in, in Moonraker, he ends up with his perfect match, which is that little tiny um, 
that that tiny girl with the the, the blonde pigtails in space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it has to be something along those lines. Look, I think it, it, either one of the fraggles, um, the smallest of them, or or I think Janice. Janice would um, party with Jason. Yeah, from Dr. Teeth's band, uh, because I think she's so mellow. Yeah. I think she would really kind of mellow him out. Yeah. You know? Bring um, that kill count right down. Yeah, right? You know? And it'd just be a lot of love and all good stuff. Um, and she seems perennially stoned, so I think that would attract him mm-hmm. anyway, because he does it, he's he does seek to, you know, to murder those that use drugs. But mm-hmm. you never see her doing drugs. So I think the scent of that might bring him close mm-hmm. without having to kill her. So Excellent. Um, I think Janice might be a perfect choice. That's a great choice. Well, Adam, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know you've never been asked that before. No, I've never uh, been asked. And listeners, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, I had a blast doing this, and we will be back. Um, we'll be back next week. I'm not 100% sure where this slots in. It all depends on how quick I can get this edited. So once again, thank you to Adam Marcus for joining us tonight for that very special interview. We hope you guys dug it. Thank you to all our listeners. Uh, on behalf of Jerry, I can say that we both really enjoy bringing not only our regular episodes, but all this bonus content to you guys. It's really fun. And, oh boy, wait till we get to the next couple series we do, because we have some very cool things uh, in store for you guys, and hopefully you guys will dig it. If you like what you heard... Go ahead and follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. That's at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. We tend to interact with everybody. As we get to wrapping up the uh, Friday the 13th series here, if you have any thoughts on what we've done or really your thoughts on Friday the 13th as a whole, like what the series means to you, what you love about it, um, what you, why you still watch it to this day, what your favorite entries are, Go ahead and drop us an email um, if you want to write something a little bit longer than a Twitter post. Go ahead and drop us an email at podandthependulum over at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to read whatever you guys write to us over the air. Um, On behalf of Jerry, this is your host, Mike Snoonian. You guys have a fantastic week, and if you're going to go out in the woods, just remember to... No, I've got nothing. I've got no witty thing to end the show with. I'm just going to pat my cat on the head and go about my day. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day. I'm going to say two words to you, Mr. Duke, and I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay? Okay. You ready? Shoot. Jason Voorhees. Well, that makes me think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut.